one of the strategies that has really worked well for us is failing once and failing fast. And the idea that failure is okay, as long as you fail carefully and responsibly, and you do it once and move on and learn from it. You're not taking huge home run swings, but you're learning how to you know, adapt quickly and move on. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Today, I have a very special guest, Colin Schilling, who is the founder and the CEO of Schilling Cider. So welcome to the podcast, Colin. I'm really happy to have you today. Excited to be here, Christy. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, well, thanks for taking some time to share your story with us. I think it's really inspiring. So why don't we start with just a little background about you and then sort of how you founded this brand? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we came to cider is pretty interesting. So I grew up in rural Idaho. My parents have been making cider since the 70s and not in any big way. We just grew up on acreage and we had some apple trees that were probably over 100 years old. And, you know, it was the kind of situation where once a year we'd pick a bunch of apples, press it, put it in the root cellar and forget about it for six months and come back and surprise, surprise, it'd be alcoholic. So when I was growing up around that, it got me really intrigued about how could we improve this process? Is there anything different that could be done? So when I was younger than I care to admit, I uh, got my parents to take me to a homebrew store. I bought a book on winemaking and I just kind of started teaching myself about the process and was just really curious about the science and the art of it. And so I made a few batches. I'm talking like one, two gallon batches, pretty small and did a little bit more control, you know, with the yeast that was a little bit more interesting than kind of what was wild in the air in our property and created something I thought was pretty good. And then it went on the back burner when I went off to college. I ended up getting my MBA and I thought I was on this track, you know, to get into the business world, do that for a while and then start a business. So I ended up only working for a corporate company for about five and a half months right out of my business school. And it just wasn't for me. You know, my whole idea was going to consulting, see a bunch of business models really fast, do that for about five years. And then when I go to start my business, I'll have a lot of tools in the tool bag, right? And it turned out that working for a really big company, while it was great and obviously is a a powerhouse of our economy and a lot of folks are really happy there, it just wasn't a good fit for me. And I was learning such a narrow piece of that business model that I didn't think it was really applicable to me starting my own business, which is why I quit after five and a half months. And, you know, in the middle of a deep recession when I was in my early 20s to go start a cider company, which I had no beverage experience previously. So very smart in hindsight, great decision-making process. Well, before you go on, I will say, I think you have to have that level into some degree of not knowing because if sometimes when you know too much, you make other decisions. So I honestly think it's one of the things I've learned the most from entrepreneurs I've talked to is about just sort of having a feeling and going with it. So I think it's cool that you did it that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And my parents have been entrepreneurs on both sides and my family, I'll tell you about as well, but many generations back. And the thing is, is if you have a family member who's been an entrepreneur, I think you're four times more likely if you even have one family member that's done it, just so you can see that example and have that pathway set. So many colleges and even high schools don't even offer that as a career path. They don't even talk about it. So it is kind of unique having that perspective, but you really just do have to dive in and try, even knowing the odds are stacked against you. The MBA program I went with, I was fortunate. It was one of the few in the country that really focuses on entrepreneurship. So we did talk about it. We did learn about it. And one of the strategies that has really worked well for us is failing once and failing fast. And the idea that failure is okay, as long as you fail 
carefully and responsibly, and you do it once and move on and learn from it. You're not taking huge home run swings, but you're learning how to you know, adapt quickly and move on. I want to hear more of your background, but I also want you to talk a little bit about what you mean by failing fast and failing responsibly, because I think everyone does it and it depends on your perspective on it. You can feel really bad about it or you can feel really good about it. Yeah, I think specific for us, you know, we hopped into the cider industry when it was very young. Obviously, we watched Angry Orchard take off, and that was really kind of proving that there was national demand for it in a big way. But there really wasn't a lot of players in the craft cider space yet. There were, you know, a few national players, Woodchuck, Cornsby's, things like that. And there were a few really high end, you know, very small kind of wine style producers. But there weren't a lot of folks like us who really produce cider almost in kind of the beer fashion, you know, in a six pack at craft beer prices. And so for us, we were learning along the way in ways that we couldn't have found a mentor or someone who really to tell us how to do it because we were kind of inventing it as we go. We were actually the first cider company in the U.S. to use cans. So, you know, now everyone takes that for granted. Most craft beverages are sold in cans, whether it's beer or even craft cocktails or wine in some cases, but especially cider, you know, it's commonplace for cans, but we were the pioneers in that space. From the production side, it was the same deal. You know, we're borrowing some equipment from wine, some equipment from beer, and then it's kind of a hybrid in between with a lot of customization as well. And so when I say fail fast, it was really about trying a lot of things, but figuring out a way to do it as cheaply as possible, the first iteration of it. And then if it works, you can double down and invest more. But when you're creating and innovating, you're always going to make mistakes because that's how you learn at the end of the day. And so our theory of fail fast and fail once is really about getting to what works as quickly and as cheaply as possible, knowing that you're going to make mistakes along the way and just accepting that up front versus, you know, betting the whole farm on one thing when you really have no idea if that one thing is going to pay off or not until you've tried it. How did you know what to do at all if you hadn't done this before? Like, do you have a partner that was in the industry or you were really literally just learning as you went? We literally got into this knowing nothing, which in hindsight is scarier than it was at the time. My co-founder, Mark Corna, him and I are a really good team. So he runs finance and engineering side. So he's a very mechanical guy. His family goes back a ways, you know, on the mechanical side as well. And he dove in and really learned the mechanical side, the equipment side. He's really not only invented a lot of things, but also figured out a way to build things, create things, source things that's really given us a leg up. You know, if you look at the Pacific Northwest, we have the fastest canning line in Oregon or Washington for alcohol by far. So our craft beer competitors, our line runs faster than three or four, sometimes five of those combined. Wow. So we have the production capacity and, you know, kind of equipment prowess to be able to really continue to grow. And that's because of Mark for sure. So he's been a great partner on that side where for me, it's been about, you know, the flavor profile creating the ciders themselves early on. Obviously we have a team of folks that are way smarter than me, you know, working on that front now, you know, the marketing and sales aspect of it. And then really what I'll talk about later, I'd love to talk about is kind of the way we've reinvented ourselves and created a people first culture organization that has been a really big departure for us as we scaled from what we originally did. But had we not done that, we wouldn't be where we are today. Talk a little bit about, so you made a product and then what? CPG is tricky to begin with, but alcohol is trickier. Right. There's a lot to know. Yeah, well, I'll give you the founding story. So my great-great-grandfather, August Schilling, started the Schilling Spice Company, which I understand you worked with McCormick, which is a really yes. cool story because McCormick actually bought Schilling in the 40s. But McCormick kept that name on the West Coast all the way till the early 2000s. Yeah. And you know, for us, we're selling to bars, restaurants, and grocery stores, the same places that those spices were well-known. And so for us, it really just was a good opportunity to take a name that got us a foot in the door in a lot of situations. And that's just smart business when you're an unknown entity. 
And so that was really where the name came. And then in terms of the product, we knew we wanted to go into cans from a sustainability aspect. So we've really been a sustainably minded company from day one. And that was the big reason for cans. Cans are far more recyclable. They're a lot lighter weight. They have a much lower carbon footprint. And at the time, like I said, no cider companies were producing in cans in the US. So we also thought it was a differentiation factor that could kind of help us. But really, we didn't know what we were doing. We took my five-gallon homebrew batch recipes and essentially scaled that up to 2,000-gallon batches. Those 2,000-gallon tanks were wine storage tanks that we actually drilled holes in and put cooling coils in that we had fabricated at a stainless steel shop down the road. So there was a lot of DIY. We ultimately, in the first couple months, built a facility that would produce about 5,000 barrels. A barrel is 31 gallons. That's kind of the alcohol measurement of volume. About 5,000 barrels of production a year for about 25 grand. And you know, if you were to go out and pay someone to build a facility of that size, it would cost you 10x that. Yeah. So it was really a DIY. And again, that idea of failing cheap, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't raise money that was all you know bootstrapped. But the idea was we were going to learn and figure out how to do this. And then our second facility was really going to be the scale-up facility. And in terms of that first product, again, we always knew that we wanted to be a brand that sold cider like craft beer. And what that meant was we had to get scale. We had to get scale relatively quickly versus a lot of other cider companies at the time, which were more on that wine model, you know, selling 750 mil bottles for higher price points. So we started relatively big with those 2000 gallon tanks. And we immediately started with distribution, which is again, a little bit of a departure from folks that usually start self-distributing and, you know, building their relationships on their own. We actually launched in Oregon and Washington at the same time with distributors in both states. And that's really how we knew we needed to scale to get the volume to make everything work out from the financial side. Just, you know, volume and scale gives the economies of scale that you need to succeed with that type of model. And again, we made mistakes. We learned along the way. Our distributor in Oregon, I think we fired after six weeks. It just wasn't a good fit. So we made a lot of pivots really quickly, but we were very willing to make those pivots fast. And that's really what allowed us to continue to grow over those first couple months and because we were doing something different, you know, a lot of folks reached out to us from other states and we ended up getting distribution pretty broadly within that first year or two, whether that was good or not, I can talk about more later, but that's kind of the early days of how we got off the ground and got to the point where we could build a, a real facility, I would call it. I mean, you learned a lot in a short period of time and I'm interested. So you said people were reaching out to you. That's pretty unusual also. So you wound up, talk a little bit about the distribution, because I think that's always a big topic for founders, you know, getting distributions awesome, but you sort of hinted at it. Sometimes if you get it too quickly and you can't support it, it's actually not that awesome. So right. a little bit. Yeah. And for us, it's interesting because we were always so solid on the production side in terms of scaling and getting ahead of that, that we never actually hit a ceiling in terms of not being able to supply demand, uh -huh. which is unique, as you said. Yeah. But I would say what happened was because we were creating a unique product, selling cider in cans and, and you know, being out there doing events, doing festivals, things like that, distributors from other states noticed us. Yeah. And so that's how we got some of our early distribution. I will say it wasn't necessarily all that strategic. So in hindsight, we were saying yes to anyone who would, you know, cut us a check at the end of the day. Yeah. And since then, we've gone back and changed a lot of those distributors. In some cases, that was a costly thing to do in some of those states, especially when regulations come into play with franchise law yeah. and other things that prevent you from leaving distributors in certain states. But we've gone through and done a lot of that and, you know, really leveled up. But that really allowed us to grow and survive early on, for sure. Did you ever and, feel like you had distribution that was so broad that you couldn't support it from an awareness perspective? 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess I talked about failures. So we'll talk about failures here. We hired someone early on who was kind of a sales expert, at least we thought, and he pushed us to distribute way more broadly than we should have in hindsight. We brought on, you know, sales reps and territories without distributors yet. And we were shipping kind of randomly all over the country to do that. And it was an absolute mistake, cost us a lot of money and we had to let him go. And I basically hopped into sales and rebuilt the sales organization before our CCO came in and took that over. But that was a situation that was really tough for us. And and it almost bankrupt us to be quite frank. We went way too broad. We weren't profitable in any of those States. It was a big mistake from bringing in someone who we thought was an expert who really didn't know the business as well as we thought. Mm -hmm. That was a big challenge. And it's really actually changed the way I think that we've run the company. We are ones that really try to insource almost everything that we possibly can. And I think that's because of some of the scar tissue we have from some of these early moves, not just in sales, something similar happened, you know, on kind of the marketing side of the business and something similar has happened on kind of like the supply chain side of the business for us, where anytime we've really completely outsourced something, it's really kind of bit us in the ass. And so we tend to be folks now, we insource a lot of things, we build the capability internally, even if it's a little slower and a little more costly, but it allows us the flexibility and the ownership of whatever we're doing. And we've proven now that if we bring it in-house, we can generally do it really, really well. And that's helped us a lot. Not to say we don't tag in you know, experts for small things, but for the most part, we're insourcing kind of the, the majority of a given piece of the business. That's interesting. I mean, I think that's a big challenge also for new brands. I mean, you guys have been around for a long time at this point, but for new brands, trying to do all that in-house is hard, expensive, right? and also, you know, you could wind up with similar issues, right? You hire people, you trust them, you have no idea. Did that take a lot of time for you guys to figure out, or did you know quickly that that wasn't going to work out? It always takes more time than it should, Oh yeah. right? I, I mean, I think, I and you got to you know, we're in our early twenties at this point too. And yeah. so the idea of firing folks that oh. are maybe a decade or two older than you that have a lot of industry experience is kind of scary, quite frankly. Yeah. And you second guess yourself a lot, but we're getting better at it for sure. And we've gotten quite good at it. And I think we've gotten really good at hiring folks too, which wasn't the case early on, but I think the team we put together now is second to none. And I'm really excited about it. And I think part of that too, if I can pivot to the culture side, Yes, is the culture that we very intentionally built. So I'll give you the backstory on that. But about three years ago, you know, Mark and I, we do a lot of informational interviews where we reach out to entrepreneurs and just say, Hey, can we talk to you for an hour? I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to hear, you know, what worked well, what didn't work well, what are some watchouts? I'm sure you've heard of this, but people are happy to do that. People love so to tell happy. their story. They do. And they so do. we very rarely get told no. And usually people are really excited to do it. And we've learned so much from this process. But about three years ago, when the company was at a size where the founders were still involved in every aspect of doing, right? Like we were overseeing every process of the company still. Everyone we talked to said, you need to focus on culture. That's the number one thing you need to focus on right now. And for us, we always knew culture was important, but we thought strategy was more important about you know making the right decisions, putting yeah. the right stuff in the market, that kind of thing. And it was really a kind of a wake-up call for us. So we ended up interviewing about 14 leadership coaches in the space. I would say 10 of which were unqualified. So be very careful if you're looking to hire a leadership coach. There's a lot of folks out in this world who are, you know, maybe just not where they should be or don't have the full regulated industry. Yes. So it's unregulated, but if you get a great one, there's nothing better. Yeah. So we work with Mo Carrick, who's phenomenal. She's written a couple of books, which are fantastic. She's absolutely an expert in this field and she has a great podcast as well. And she's been working with us ever since. And really what we were able to do with her is 
revolutionize the way that we look at culture and how we build culture. And so it started with us working with her just in the four executive leadership, our C-level folks. We really kind of walked the talk before we asked anyone else to do anything. And then from there, we've really rolled it out to the rest of the company. So it's the way we do performance management. It's the way we do learning and development. It's the way we set up our perks. It's the expectations we have around our employees. And we measure culture every year with something called the Denison tool, which is a benchmarked culture survey that's benchmarked against about a thousand companies globally. And so it's really important because you can actually see where you stack up against your competitors on culture. And even in our first year of taking that, we'd been working with Mo for about a year. We scored pretty high, but we still had some deficiencies. And so it really allows you to drill in and see where you can improve and where you can you know, drive culture more, which ultimately drives performance. That's why it's so powerful because having a strong culture means you're going to have top level performance. And in our last year that we took it, our scores were some of the highest that Mo's ever seen in the company. That's and so amazing. within three years, we really went from a company that didn't focus on culture to being best in class. And that's why I say now our team is second to none. We have a super strong team that I think is really dedicated and just really on top of what they're doing. And I'm really confident with the team we have about whatever challenges you know 2023 throws at us. That's amazing. What was the tipping point for you? Like you said, you were really focused on strategy and then somehow you got convinced by whom, or was it a series of people that you needed to focus on culture? And did you have a sense of what it was going to take to do that? I mean, it sounds like you put a lot into it. We did. I mean, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment and time. Wow. Um, the tipping point was we had, I think, four back-to-back informational interviews with you know CEOs and founders of companies that are well north of $100 million a year companies all tell us that culture was number one. And it really just caught us off guard because it wasn't the answer that we were expecting from yeah. these very successful entrepreneurs. And like I said, built into the kind of our ethos is learn fast you know, mm-hmm. fail once, learn fast. And so mm-hmm. not that we necessarily failed on this front, but it just was so surprising for us that we dove head in and we committed to it hundred percent. And that's why we invested the time and money in finding a really good leadership coach that's helped us, you know, kind of revolutionize the way we're yeah. doing it. And when you say you guys had to walk the walk first or walk the talk, what did that mean for you? What did you have to do and change that you weren't doing at the time? I mean, all sorts of things, but I think if you've read Brene Brown, obviously another expert in the field, you know, it's kind of like leading with courage. And so a lot of it is just giving people honest, real-time feedback. And that's really hard in companies. Communication is really hard. Honest, real-time feedback is hard. And so we got good at doing that with the four of us. And then we would model that behavior in front of the rest of the company. So, you know, we'd call each other out in a nice and kind and respectful way. But we would disagree even in open meetings with other folks. And we would have those conversations and we would give each other feedback, you know, in front of the rest of the company before we asked anyone else to do changes. And then we really revolutionized the way we're doing performance management across the company as well. And so the data really shows that annual reviews, which is what a lot of companies still do, are not only ineffective, but it actually hurts performance. You need to be doing them at least monthly, if not quarterly, but monthly is what the data shows as best practice. And so what we did is we have a process now called the monthly meetup process. And that's a one hour meeting between every single manager and their employee every month. And it's a meeting to talk about how the work's going and it's structured. We have a bunch of different, you know, primer questions in there and there's three different sections, which are celebrate, collaborate and follow up. And it really allows folks to have honest real-time feedback and give people, you know, feedback on their work so they can actually make improvements on a real-time basis And just having that one hour a month then means it kind of spills over to all working hours once people get comfortable with the process. 
And I can't stress enough. I mean, you're on the East coast, but I'm on the West coast. We're known to be passive aggressive out here. So we're even worse at kind of speaking our mind and giving people feedback than the average, but it's something that I think any company can do better on is creating that kind of performance culture around always looking to maximize and optimize. And that only happens if you're getting feedback on your work. And so I think that was one of the biggest ways that we kind of led with the ELT, but then really rolled it out to the rest of the company as well. It's interesting. I think people feel like when you even say that, oh my God, how could I possibly squeeze in a monthly review of all my employees into my already overly ridiculous founder full schedule? Did you guys feel that way at any point? Do you feel that way now? It's an investment for sure. And I think it took a few months to get buy-in, but once people saw the results, everyone is, is very, very into it now. But you're right at the beginning, it is kind of one of those things where you have to kind of take the leap and then yeah. you have to wait a few months. You really have to give it the space to succeed. Anytime you roll out something new, you're not going to see results immediately most of the time. We also just rolled out, I guess, last year now, I always forget it's 2023 at this point, a new performance personal development plan. So it's basically learning and development for every person in the whole company. And again, it's the same kind of process. So each manager works with their employee to develop a year-long learning and development roadmap, essentially. And then it's checked in on monthly as well. But that's one of those things where we're investing in our employees' learning and growth. You're not going to see payback on that in one or two or three months. But in a year or two from now, when we have folks that are experts because they've been spending the time on training, that's yeah. going to pay back in a big way. So yeah. you're right. You do just have to invest in that time. But again, you're not doing this with every single person that works for the company, right? It's layered by your org chart. Of course. So each person ideally has four or five a month. So it's an investment of maybe you know, 5% of somebody's hours per month to do these kind of things. But I think it's well worth it. What were the major changes you saw over the period of time before you started thinking about it so deeply to now? Like what are the real differences in your employees and your productivity and your brand in general? At the people level, I think people are just a lot happier. You know, when you, especially on the West Coast, again, I, we are known to be passive aggressive. If you see something that's not working and you're not able to give that feedback to the person or that person's not able to receive it, you kind of stew on it and you fester on it and it uh -huh. gets in the way of a lot of other things. And it gets in the way of your own satisfaction, to be quite frank. And so if you can just cut right through that and improve performance at the same time, it just creates such a stronger and, and more fun working environment. Uh -huh. So I think that's huge. On the long-term side of it, I think we make better decisions. So it actually loops back to strategy and it allows us to be yeah, a stronger company yeah. and see things with a more long-term viewpoint as well. Awesome. I think it's great. And I, I think it's really interesting because I we talk about culture on the podcast a few times and there are a few people that are interested, but this is deep that you're talking about. This is a real commitment. I feel like the other brand, do you know Midday Squares? They're, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, They're a Canadian brand and they have chocolate alternative, if you will, that's very, very good. And the founders are awesome, energetic, hilarious. And one of the guys was like a, an athlete growing up and had a coach all the time. And when he started the company, he's like, we need a coach. And they actually had yep. someone who, and still do, I can't remember, but I feel like it was once a week, the executive team met with a coach and talked yep. about all the things you're talking about on such a consistent basis that they're used to giving and getting feedback. And it doesn't, right feel like, I think when you do it once a year, it feels like it's almost hurtful in a way. Exactly. It has to be a compilation of all the things that have gone wrong and right over a giant period of time. And so I right. think what you guys are doing on like the monthly basis is so awesome because it doesn't feel scary. There's no anticipation of something, what's going to come. I don't know because you're doing it so often. There's no right. way not to know how you're doing. It's cool. And I think the one thing I would add to that too, is we spend a fair amount of time in that top section, which is the celebrate section. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks forget that too, that feedback is not always negative. Feedback yeah. should be positive, quite yeah. frankly, more often than it's negative. Because if you double down and invest in the things you're already good at, you get a much bigger payback than if you're working on things you're bad at. Not yeah. to say that we don't need to work on the things that we're bad at, but if you can say, hey, employee X is really good at this, I want yep. them to do more of that and I'm going to invest in that. You just create a more productive, more efficient and stronger and happier workforce by investing in the things people are already good at. Talk a little bit about where the brand is now from all perspectives, distribution, how you guys feel, how big you are, how big you want to get. Yeah, that's a great question. And I know we talked about this a little bit previously as well, but we are actually actively slowing down growth right now, which Mm -hmm. is a little different than probably most folks you get on the podcast. And we are also organic growth. We're not taking investor capital. We have a little bit of bank debt, of course, to, you know, we're, we're a manufacturing company at the end of the day, but I know that's very different. And so for us, We've grown the company. We're about 10 years old now to the point where we are the second largest producer of cider in the nation by volume. That's over a couple brands. So we do not just shilling. We do some Copac. We do some non-alcohol. We have an amazing new Yerba Mate, which is a high caffeine tea drink. I can't call it an energy drink, but it is a high caffeine tea drink. And it's a really great product. Is that under your brand? It's called Vita Mate. Okay. So it's not under the shilling brand. We didn't want to confuse alcohol and non-alcohol. That's really tricky, especially from a regulatory standpoint. It's a product we're really excited about. And from a consumer segmentation standpoint, there's only so much alcohol and, you know, evening drinks that the consumer wants, but everybody's getting their caffeine in some form or fashion in the morning as well. And so it really allows us to get into a whole new marketplace, but through the same, you know, manufacturing facility, the same distributor network, the same selling network. So it really allows us a lot of synergy and we like diversification. You know, like I said, we started this during the great recession. We are hypersensitive to being diversified and creating a strong business. But you know where we're going, we do want to be diversified, but we also want to grow at a reasonable pace. We're at the point now where the company has been profitable for a very long time, and we're not trying to flip this thing. And so you see a lot of other companies, especially in the beverage space right now, that take a ton of investor capital. They're growing as fast as possible. It's not a sustainable thing for anyone, the founders or the employees, but they're trying to get bought out you know, for a huge multiple as quick as they can. And I think it's put some unique and strange pressures on the beverage industry as a whole, because we have so many folks trying to do that, mm-hmm. especially after Ballast Point and some other, you know, huge exits on the craft beer side, you know, a few years ago. But the reality of it is, is those buyers have dried up in a lot of ways. There's just a lot less of that. And it wasn't anything we were ever shooting for anyways. And so we've just built the company differently. But as I read about some, you know, like I'm reading a book by Ken Grossman right now about the Sierra Nevada story. And it's a little different, you know, and it's funny because if you go back to the kind of early craft beer, it's much more like that where it's scrappy, you know, Mm -hmm. you're trying to build a business that has staying power and is making right decisions for the long term. And so that's really what we're trying to play right now is be diversified, make great products, but not grow too fast. Mm -hmm. And so what that means for us is we're saying no to opportunities and opening up new states. You know, we're trying to get deeper in the states we're already in, really cement ourselves and launch some new products, but not too many new products. You know, there's been a lot of churn in our industry over the last couple of years with a ton of new products and innovation from seltzer to ready to drink cocktail brands to endless endless. And the buyers are quite frankly, tired of it. Mm -hmm. They want to see brands with staying power. And I think that's more interesting to build anyways. So that's really what we're focusing on is, is making smart moves, but not trying to do too much. And to some degree, kind of ride out the coming storm that I think is going to happen. A little bit of a reckoning that's going to happen with, you know, a lot of companies that have been investor driven with that capital drying up now with buyers not buying. I think it's going to be kind of a different landscape. That's going to be really good for us as a company that's always been focused on organic growth and being sustainable. 
And for me as, you know, a founder who's worked a lot of hours for a lot of years and not taken a lot of vacation, I want to enjoy the ride a little more yeah. than I've enjoyed in the past as well. I have a scuba diving trip to Belize coming up. I'm really excited about. So, you know, just trying to take a little bit more time and enjoy, you know, what we built and the fruits of the labor and keep it really strong for our employees. You know, we do a lot of above and beyond things that a lot of companies don't for our employees. And I think by slowing it down, we can give that same experience to them. One thing that I think is just really fun. I love people to steal this idea, but we do a perk for everyone in the company called the BCS, which stands for buy cool shit. So it's $750 that everyone gets to expense per year, but they have to buy something for fun. It's for their life side. And so we have a lot of folks that buy, you know, outdoor gear. We had someone buy cement for a new patio for their backyard. People have gotten tattoos, all sorts of fun stuff. And so being able to do more of that and focus on, you know, a more balanced lifestyle, not just for me, but for our entire employee base is really important to us. What do you want the next 10 years to look like? It sounds like you're not looking to unload your brand, which is amazing. And I think you're right. So many people come into this with that as their end goal. And it's such a different mentality because you're not trying to grow something sustainable. You're trying to get in and out quickly. That's, I think, led us to the place we're at where there are a lot of brands that show up and disappear. And that's why I think the money's drying up right now as well, because it was too much. There was too much. Yeah. So where do you want to be? Well, I'm very proud to say, even though I have an MBA, we've never written a business plan and we never will. And we don't even do a five-year plan. It's more of where are we trying to go, but how can we be adaptable along the way? Yeah. You know, for us in 10 years, my dream would be to be the number one cider company in the country. Angry Orchard still has, you know, a multiple on where we are size-wise, but they've been declining for a long time. And I think, you know, the craft beer and craft cider space, just a little bit more interesting than some of these kind of national brands for buyers as they continue to mature and kind of premiumize. So that would be my dream, but I don't want to kill ourselves doing it. So I want to do it at a sustainable pace. I'd like to have a couple new brands in the pipeline as well from that diversification standpoint. So Vita Mate is a prime example of that in a space that inherently doesn't compete with alcohol. You know, anything that we can- create that one or is that something you acquired? No, we we created it. Yep. So Guayaki is an amazing brand on the West Mm -hmm. Coast. They sell in in multiple states now as well. But they have, you know, 80 plus percent market share of a category that's an amazing kind of caffeine delivery system. And what we've done with Vita Mate is taken our expertise in, you know, fruit, obviously cider, lots of fruit and our manufacturing process. So we created a really amazing beverage around that. That's really flavor forward. And Yerba Mate, along with some of the other adaptogens we put in it, have a really nice kind of caffeine uptake curve. And so you don't get the crash that you get with synthetic or even sometimes your quad latte, same idea. And so it's a really nice way to enjoy caffeine and it's a pretty sustainable way to do it as well. Talk about, if you will, I know we're, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but do you have anything that you've learned along the way that you want to share? I always ask this at the end of a podcast, do you have a few tips or lessons or things you want to share with other founders, entrepreneurs? Yeah, I've been thinking about this and I think my number one, looking back on our journey, you just have to take the leap of faith. You know, we were young and dumb, sure, when we started the company, but at the same time, had we not taken that leap of faith, it would be a very different reality today. And not just for me, but for a lot of folks with our culture first and people forward kind of thought process around the brand. And so that would be my advice to anyone thinking about doing it is you just have to do it, but know it's going to be a ton of work along the way. Mm-hmm. And I think that the type of people that are willing to take that, that leap of faith know that it's going to be a lot of work, but if you don't try, you're always going to fail. That's true. That's definitely true. Was there a moment for you guys where you were like, yes, we know what we're doing. We figured it out. The future looks bright versus I have no idea where we're going. 
And I have my fingers crossed and I'm holding on tight. (laughs) We certainly didn't know at the time, but I think looking back, that was probably only in the last 24 months when that really happened for us. You know, when COVID first hit, everyone was terrified. We didn't know what was going to happen. And all of a sudden sales were through the roof. And so we, you know, were able to not only survive that when a lot of companies, especially in the food and beverage industry, think restaurants had a really rough go of it. You know, we were able to grow the company during that time. And I think sometime over the last two years, we really figured it out and knew that we had a really bright future. And that's what's allowed us to kind of take the foot off the gas a little bit and say, we're going to make a conscious decision to slow down growth and enjoy the ride, knowing that we don't have anyone, you know, breathing down our neck saying you need to have another 60% year of growth. And by the way, when I say slowing down growth, we're still in in the healthy double digit year over year, but we've been in, in the rate the last couple of years, like the last five years that are fairly unsustainable for almost any company, especially Mm -hmm. if you have to manufacture your own product. Like this last year alone, we added 80,000 square feet of production space and doubled our tank capacity. So those kind of things are fun and exciting, but you can't do that year over year and keep a sustainable lifestyle at the same time. So that's what I'm really excited to be able to balance, uh, you know, over the next five and 10 years. I honestly think you might be the first person I've had on to say we're, we are consciously slowing down growth and we want to breathe. Yeah. I don't think you even think about breathing at the beginning of being an you entrepreneur. You can't. You can't. No. Yeah. Right. But hopefully for the sake of everybody else, you have more folks on the podcast that come to that same conclusion. Yeah. I think it's really important because what's the point if at the end you are just so burnt out and like you haven't lived. Right. And you live in the most beautiful place. So you have to live a little. There's lots of beautiful places, but yeah, Seattle yeah, is great. Yeah. You live in a one of the most beautiful places, I should say. It's beautiful. It's a fact. I agree. <laughs> one of my favorites. Anything else you want to uh, leave us with? You know, I would just like to go on a small rant about sustainability because that is a huge passion of mine. So if you'll yeah. indulge me for a few minutes, I will. you know, like I said, we were the first cider company to go into cans. And that was really important because, you know, my model of sustainability in business is if you can change your own company, great. But if you can change a whole industry, that's a lot more powerful. Yes. And if you look at what's happened with can adoption in craft beer, cider, all sorts of beverages, quite frankly, it's massively, massively grown. And that has been a boon for sustainability. But over the last couple of years, there's been this situation where folks are wrapping cans or putting stickers on cans. And not a lot of folks want to talk about this because it's kind of the industry's dirty little secret, but they're not recyclable unless you cut or peel that label back off. And if you get, yeah, people don't like to talk about this, but because a lot of folks have to do it because of volume, you know, their volume's too small to hit the minimums. We've made a conscious choice to do less seasonals, less rotating things. So we never have to wrap cans Mm -hmm. and we're paying in some cases nearly double to get digitally printed cans to avoid the wraps. But what happens if you get too many of these cans in a mix, if you get three to 5%, it depends on where you are and what recycling company you're, you're using. Some will actually throw away the entire mix. So, you know, if you're three to 5% of wrapped cans get in with my cans, now my cans are going into landfill instead of getting recycled as well. So it's really horrendous from that point. If they do go to recycling, generally speaking, it goes overseas and it gets burned off with no environmental controls. So you're essentially just melting that plastic and burning it right into the atmosphere. Wow. So no matter how you shake it, it's terrible. And the industry needs to be pressured to get away from wrapped and sticker cans as quickly as possible. I actually wrote a case study about this with a professor at Willamette University that got published last year, if folks really want to take a deep dive on it. But what's happening is there are more and more digital print can companies now that will do as few as 30 cans. 
So even if you're just doing a, a teensy little pilot run, you can get digitally print cans. So anyone who's doing a beverage in can, my ask is please don't wrap or stick your cans. Please take a little bit more time, a little bit more effort, a little bit more cost for now that will come down to get a digitally printed can if you can't meet the minimum for a regular standard print can. It's really going to help the sustainability promise of cans generally and, and just keep our world a, a better place. That's so interesting. It's really good to know. If you want to send me a link to your paper, I will link yeah. it in my blog post. And I'll make a note of that. I'll definitely include that. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, literally I had no idea. Right. Until People don't like to talk about it. No, no, I'm sure. I'm sure they don't. I mean, you assume everything you get in a can is better recyclable, but wow, that's quite a revelation. And if you do get a wrap, you can cut it off. I mean, you can cut it off and then recycle it. That's fine. But, you know, bars and restaurants don't have the time for that. And most people don't know they have to do that. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think people know. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Yeah, no, I appreciate your time so much. So great to chat with you. I really think this is a great podcast and I hope that people will love it. And I can't wait to get it up. Well, thanks for having me, Christy. I really appreciate it. And have a nice weekend. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.